big picture view, RC, you know, what do you stand for? What's your legacy? And I said, um, is it classical theism? Is that at the center? Honestly, I thought he was going to jump out of his seat. You know, we've all seen that, RC. Like he comes to life and it's like the game face is on. I thought he was going to jump out of his seat. Absolutely, it is. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. When I say the name R.C. Sproul, I can count that many of our listeners, I just know that many of our listeners, will automatically have many memories from the life and the teachings and the writings of, of R.C., and for good reason, too. Perhaps you remember uh, some of those famous messages he gave on the doctrines of grace or perhaps that uh, message on the holiness of God. I know for many of our listeners, uh, sometimes just hearing R.C. lecture, uh, his unique style, very animated style of lecturing at the chalkboard, uh, drew them in. And uh, they not only focused on, say, one of his sermons, but perhaps even dived into one of his books, such as The Holiness of God or Chosen by God. I remember in my own life uh, a very distinct point at which R.C. Sproul became uh, such a pivotal thinker in my own uh, theological imagination. I was reading, uh, as a very young Christian, I was reading any number of books by Augustine to John Calvin, and then R.C. Sproul entered into my life, so to speak, my theological life, and started to talk about everything from the doctrines of grace to Christian or classical apologetics uh, to even uh, some more specific issues, such as the sovereignty of God and election. Well, since R.C. Sproul has died, I think that many have felt his absence in so many ways. Uh, he was a type of theological giant who was so gifted in communicating very difficult concepts to those uh, churchgoers as well as pastors, those laboring uh, to even reach people on the mission field. And for this reason, I think it's very helpful and important to reflect on not just the life of R.C. Sproul, but some of his teaching as well. I have invited none other than Stephen Nichols to uh, talk to us about R.C. Sproul, not only because Steve knew R.C. firsthand and I think has so many stories about him, but he also has written a book about R.C. called R.C. Sproul, A Life, published with Crossway. And, of course, many of you know Steve from some of his own writings. He is the president of Reformation Bible College. He's the chief academic officer of Ligonier Ministries. He has written so many books. Uh, I have really enjoyed some of his books, uh, for example, on Martin Luther. Or perhaps you've listened to some of his podcasts, Five Minutes in Church History. But Steve, we are just uh, so excited to have someone on the Credo podcast who knew R.C. Um, from firsthand experience and was a friend to him. So thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. I'm looking forward to this conversation together with you. I was, as I was listening to your intro, I was just, you said it, felt his absence and I still feel his absence. So happy to uh, spend this time talking about our mutual teacher, Dr. Sproul. I have reflected on that since uh, R.C. Uh, left us and went to be with Christ. I I think uh, oftentimes, especially if there's a theological controversy that tends to erupt from time to time as they do, I've often thought, hmm, I, I think I know what R.C. might say about this. But maybe even more to the heart of the man, uh, I think I know how he might say it as well. And, uh, my, you know, for, for many of our listeners, they're, they, they have an image of R.C. RC down 
across the uh, the decades, right? You know, just uh, you know, right. throwing his arms around in that sports coat and just you know writing up there on the chalkboard, you know, a term in Latin and trying to explain it and and doing so in such a gifted way. Uh, that got at, you know, the very heart of the matter. But, but Steve, I mean, you knew him also, uh, one on one behind the scenes, outside the camera. I mean, what, maybe we should start there. I mean, what, what kind of person, what kind of friend, what kind of colleague was RC to you? Very encouraging. Uh, I count it as a true blessing in my life to be able to, to be down here, uh, what ended up being the twilight years of his life. Mm-hmm. And, being able to just discuss with him things that are happening here at the college, things like in your ministry, meeting with him from time to time, meeting with him, um, with Chris Larson. And just honestly, he was always an encouragement. And of course, they love to crack jokes and give you one liners and <laughs> put you on the spot. And you never knew. Like, I, I remember one time going over to his house, like, you think he's going to want to discuss theology all the time. And so you sort of geared <laughs> up for a theological examination, you know, but you walk into his home and he says, uh, what colony in the Revolutionary War had the most death? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, uh, Virginia. Nope. Uh, Massachusetts. Nope. Pennsylvania. Nope. And so you finally give up and he goes, South Carolina. And uh, he had just been reading a biography of the Swamp Fox, uh, you know, the the character, the, the historical figure that is the inspiration for the Patriot movie. Mm. And so all he wanted to talk about was South Carolina and the Revolutionary War. <laughs> and and, I, and I, I was not prepared for that, Matthew. I just I was caught off guard. Yeah. Um, but it, was, it was always fun mm. with him. Now, Steve, um, I mean, you mentioned a minute ago how you had the opportunity to enjoy R.C. in, in his twilight years, but maybe we should go way back uh, to R.C.'s young years and talk about um, some of his seminary experience. Uh, and, you know, there's so many things we could talk about, but since uh, apologetics is, you know, in the back of my mind mm. as we're having this conversation and was so important to R.C., I mean, we should we should probably go back um, to his seminary days because uh, I mean, this might surprise some people because they think of R.C. as, you know, this defender of classical apologetics. And then when it comes to soteriology, uh, defender of uh, reform theology and the doctrines of grace and so on. But he didn't start seminary that way, did he? Well, he did not start seminary that way at all. (laughs) <laughs> he, he started seminary as a as an Arminian who did not like the Reformed view of predestination. He writes about this in Chosen by God in the opening chapter. Um, he 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 would go toe to toe with John Gershner. I suspect we'll be talking more about him as this podcast unfolds. But he would go into battle with Gershner, who was you know the consummate Calvinist of his day. His college influence was a Westminster Seminary, Cornelius Van Til trained philosophy professor who also did a PhD at Penn. And so in his apologetics, he's presuppositionalist, not classical. Um, and this is how he starts off seminary. Um, that's not going to be the same RC uh, when he leaves <laughs> seminary. And it's not the RC that, uh, you know, he's known for today, but which is interesting because I, I think – you know, even in he talks about this with his Calvinism, it just gives him a great deal of sympathy for people mm. knowing that he himself struggled. That's the word he used, struggled with these doctrines and, and was a time in coming to fully appreciate the sovereignty of God in all of its implications. Mm. And then really at the heart of that, too, is what I'm talking about is classical theism. And that's at the heart of his apologetics view as well. And it, it took him a while to see that too. But, you know, once he saw it, well, there's no going back. And uh, then he becomes a champion of both of those. Mm. Now, you mentioned a name that was very dear to R.C. Uh, early on, uh, but but even as he grew older, and that is John Gerstner. Steve, right. what I mean, it's hard to even describe John Gerstner's influence on R.C. 
but maybe with an eye towards apologetics in particular. I mean, how, where is, I mean, he's, he's at Pittsburgh seminary. I mean, how is John Gerstner breaking into RC's life, his theological mind? I mean, you mentioned even a minute ago, RC's like having these, these debates and arguments with, <laughs> with John Gerstner as his professor. Uh, what gives here and, and how does John go from this debating partner to this, um, influencer on his theology and apologetics and then ultimately his life? I think if you go, you need to see the foundation that RC had when he went to seminary and how God brought that together, even though RC wasn't, wasn't quite there when he started seminary. He's converted his first year of college. He grows up in a liberal Presbyterian church. The church is right around the corner from his house. He's there all the time, never hears the gospel. The pastor of that church rewrote the catechism. And the first question of the catechism that the pastor gave a young R.C. and his fellow pupils, who is the greatest Christian who ever lived? Answer, Albert Schweitzer. <laughs> so <laughs> we know where this is going, right? So he gets to college, hears the gospel for the first time, is converted, immediately starts reading the Bible. So there's number one. And R.C. comes to this realization, the God of the Bible is a God who plays for keeps. That's his first foundation plank. Secondly, there's this college professor who influences him in philosophy. And R.C. actually convinces the registrar and the dean to create a philosophy major at Westminster College, about an hour's north of Pittsburgh in Western PA, to create a philosophy major. R.C. convinces them to do that, and he's the first graduate with a <laughs> philosophy major from Westminster College. And he's studying, you know, Augustine and Edward and Calvin. So he loves philosophy. He's got a philosophical mind. He's getting introduced now to the classical Reformed tradition. And he's got, uh, he, he's getting the Bible and he's reading the Bible and he's understanding the God of the Bible. Now he comes to seminary and it's as if all those ingredients can be put together and bake the cake. And so he comes to Pittsburgh which is a liberal seminary, and Gershner is one of the few conservative voices at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, and just takes to RC. They do a course on Edwards together, uh, basically an independent study, and the, the capstone of that was walking through freedom of the will together. Um, RC was doing an uh, independent study exegesis of the Book of Romans, and so of course, all these themes are going to come together there, both the Calvinism, doctrines of grace themes, and as we understand Romans 1, you know, what's going on with creation and what can be known about God from creation. So, so all of this is coming together. But what Gershner does for R.C. is Gershner embodies it. Gershner embodies for R.C. a man of Christian conviction. Uh, Gershner just didn't believe things, right? He, he, he just didn't teach. He growled. Like he, these beliefs, he had convictions, not beliefs. And I think that was RC. You know, I talked to so many people just before RC died and they'd want to tell me about the influence, but especially after he died. And they would say things like RC put steel in my spine. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that's what Gershner helped RC see, uh, you know, pulling all these things together so we have a right theology. And then what are we supposed to do with that theology? Well, we need to contend for it. Yeah. Uh, we need to get it deep in our heads and then deep in our hearts and then live it out. And that's worship before a holy God. So Gershner was very pivotal. And, um, I mean, at one point, R.C. calls Gershner his lifeline. Yeah. That's what the seminary years. Mm. Now, you mentioned another name that I just can't help but uh, focus on for a second here. And that is Jonathan Edwards, because anyone who knows John Gershner knows that Jonathan Edwards was uh, a massive uh, influence on him. And Jonathan Edwards has this, uh, I think this is in uh, his personal narrative, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, where he has this statement where he, in just four words, he, he sums up so much of his approach, uh, when he says, tis rational, tis biblical. And, yes. of course, John Gershner is, uh, echoing this to RC, mm -hmm. but this, 
in many ways, would you say, Steve, becomes also a slogan for R.C.'s mind and for his approach? I mean, you mentioned how he's contending for the faith. How does this slogan, tis rational, tis biblical, how does this in so many ways capture not just the theology but the approach of R.C., uh, whether it's philosophy or apologetics itself? Yeah, this is a great paradigm, isn't it? And it's a very helpful paradigm to pull together all these different teachings. You see it in his definition of apologetics, which is in his classic text, which was written by Sproul, Gershner, and Lindsley. And then you see it in his, his follow-up apologetics book, Defending Your Faith, where he defines apologetics as the rational defense of the Christian faith. And this is part of classical theism. This is stretching back uh, not only to, to Edwards, but then a straight line through Calvin and other reformers to Aquinas, especially Aquinas on the doctrine of God, and then back into Augustine, and then preceding Augustine in classical philosophy, uh, Aristotle and Plato. And this idea that, uh, you know, if you, if you don't, you don't know the cause, but you know the effects, you work from the effects to the cause. And we know the world. We see the world. We have sensory experience of the world. We live in this world, and so we move from this world of the effect back to the cause. And eventually, as we argue through this, you can pull up Aquinas' five ways. Uh, Eventually, we are arguing back to this one eternal God. And so R.C. very much believed that being creatures in the image of God, that uh, we uh, are capable rationally of exploring this world and arriving at the conclusion of the existence of God. And he would even go a step further and say that we can make a rational argument for the trustworthiness and reliability of Scripture, not not the inerrancy of Scripture, not a full-blown Reformed sola scriptura position by any stretch, uh, but enough to say this is a unique book, and it is rational to see it as God's revelation, and we should pay attention to it. So that's very much a part of his apologetics. Uh, but then, of course, ultimately, God's truth is the source of our theology of containing his word. R.C.'s is no more champion of the five solas in the 20th and 21st century than R.C.'s role. Mm. And so, of course, he's going to be an advocate for sola scriptura, for our doctrine and practice and life as Christian and as a church. So, yeah, to see him as tis rational, tis biblical, is not only Edwardsian, uh, which it is, but I think R.C. would say, this is classical theism. And this is the strain that he sees going through church history, and he sees himself as a part of it and standing on the shoulders of it Mm. and um, handing it on to the next generation. You know, right before uh, this, I think this is 2018, uh, 2017, 2018 is when you have a number, Steve, you have a number of conversations with R.C., and I think in 2017 is when you have a very fascinating, it's short, but a very fascinating uh, discussion with R.C. over classical theism. Now, I suppose that some of our listeners are thinking, what are you talking about? I've, I've followed R.C. I've, I read his book on the chosen by God or, or uh, his book on justification by faith alone. Uh, he didn't write on classical theism, uh, but you bring out a, a fascinating point here because, uh, I mean, you've already alluded to it and we, we were kind of sneaking up on it with his book, uh, Classical yeah. Apologetics. But maybe even people who are uh, familiar with, okay, RC in philosophy and apologetics haven't thought about what is the doctrine of God behind, <laughs> behind that apologetics yeah. that even gives him the ability, uh, to, to say something like tis rational, tis biblical. And he has this, uh, shocking statement that I just love where he says what he's talking about how, he, you know, he founded Ligonier and all that. And he says, what I've said since we started Ligonier 46 years ago is that the biggest crisis that the church faces today is our understanding of the nature of God. 
Now, I, I, I saw that and I just thought, wow, that is, that is a statement coming from RC who focused on so many different areas of theology. And yet here he is saying, you know, when, I, when I look at what's one of the biggest, maybe the biggest challenge today, it's, we have a, a challenge when it comes to the understanding God in the right way. Now, what I find so, so, uh, telling here is that, uh, I think it was you, you, you then mention that word to him, aseity. <laughs> and, uh, uh, for those of, you know, our listeners, I think our listeners are probably familiar with this word aseity. Um, but th- for those who aren't, aseity simply means that God is, uh, absolute life in and of himself. And, and therefore he's, uh, self-existent and self-sufficient. But Steve, RC has said on a number of occasions that this is one of his favorite words. He, I love the, <laughs> that point where he said he gets, he gets, uh, uh, chill bumps, as he called them. Chill bumps. <laughs> chill bumps, right? Uh, Up not, and down his arm. Chill bumps. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, I, I think he might be, you know, combining there two, two sayings, you know, uh, goosebumps and a chill up my spine, but chill bumps. And, um, he goes on to say, well, uh, uh, he uses that older word that, you know, we think of you know, someone like Thomas Aquinas and others, uh, using language like this where they, where he says, uh, God is pure act. He's, he's pure actuality. He's pure being. And then yeah. you asked him, well, well, RC, what, what is your legacy when you think about it? And he says, oh, well, you say, is it classical theism? Is that at the center? And he says, absolutely. So I, I just have to dwell on this, Steve, for a minute here because sure. I wonder, if sometimes, I mean, R.C. is is known for so many things and people love him, but I I do worry sometimes that they miss this. But for R.C., why does he think? Why does he make such a big claim to say, no, this is at the center of my legacy? This goes back to what we were talking about when he when he first reads the Bible as a Christian, and he he he'll, he'll talk about it numerous times. He did talk about it, and um, you could see him vividly living it. And, and coming to the conclusion, this is a God who plays for keeps. And I, and I find this so fascinating because, you know, he doesn't come out of sort of a evangelical culture where the gospel's there, but some of the other pieces of theology are missing. Right. He comes to the gospel like fresh snowfall, mm. and he comes to Christianity fresh snowfall. There's no tracks. There's no... And so he's reading the Bible and seeing in it, at the center of it, this doctrine of God. Then he goes and writes his bachelor's thesis. So he writes a bachelor's thesis on the existential implications of Herman Melville's Moby Dick. And he focuses in on a few chapters there, but especially on Melville's chapter, The Whiteness of the Whale. And of course, this is a metaphor for God, Moby Dick, and Ahab's chasing of it. But he has this line in there that talks about Ahab who thought he could like circumscribe the whale and chart the whale and navigate the whale and therefore conquer the whale. And he totally underestimated the transcendence of the white whale. And R.C. says this represents the shallow religious views of mankind. Mm. Okay, there it is. He's 21 years old. And that's the center of his thought. So then... He proceeds to delve into this classical theism tradition. He comes to Isaiah chapter 6, and now we're seeing this uh, this all come together. So here I interview with him, and I interviewed with him a number of times for the biography. This turned out in God's providence. This was the last interview we had together that you're referencing, mm. and it was only 30 minutes. Um, his voice wasn't as strong that day. It was a 30 minute thing. And up until that point, Matthew, we had been going like chronological, you know, we'd pick up at 1965 and we'd go to 1969. And then the next recording we picked up from there and went forward. I started off this recording session and I said, all right, let's, let's jump out of the chronological. Let's get off the clothesline for a second. (laughs) Big picture view, RC, you know, what do you stand for? What's your legacy? And I said, um, is it classical theism? Is that at the center? Honestly, I thought he was going to jump out of his seat. You know, we've all seen that, RC. Like he comes to life and it's like the game face is on. I thought he was going to jump out of his seat. Absolutely it is. 
And and it's and then you know you say I'd asked him this before. If you could write one more book, what would it be? The aseity of God. Oh. Doesn't even think. And then you go, well, what is it about Aquinas's five ways? God as necessary being. That's the key. You know, we're all contingent beings. Hmm. We need that beginning of the causal chain. We need that being outside of the chain of being, who is the origin of all things. God as necessary being. So this is aseity. This is necessity. This is the one true eternal God. And what does Zarsti do, right? He loves drama. Yeah. So he's going to get at this through Isaiah chapter 6. Mm. And he's going to get at this through holiness. But holiness was always for him representative of the transcendent, eternal God who is without parts, simple, and without cause, right? necessary and not contingent. And so holiness really is a way of his expression of this classical theism. And it's brilliant, you know, from a from a, a drawing you in as a teacher perspective. Like it was a brilliant pedagogical move to capture our attention with holiness. Because now we understand God who he is, not the God that we think he is or the God we want him to be. So it's very much a part of him. Like classical, the holiness of God is classical theism. Yeah. Chosen by God is classical theism. Classical apologetics is classical theism, and that's what RC wanted wanted me to know yeah. <laughs> in that final interview. <laughs> uh, you know, I you know this uh, maybe even more than I do, Steve, because you're a historian. Uh, t- down to the bone, <laughs> but uh, oftentimes historians they may not write about this. But I know as a historian, you you always think, you know, what if, what if, <laughs> what if this would have happened, or what if um, this event would have changed everything? And uh, that's one of those what ifs, isn't it? Where we we see classical theism coming through in beautiful ways, and the holiness of God. Um, when when folks are reading this, uh, there it is. Uh, or when they they transition and look at chosen by God or uh, RC's uh, book on uh, philosophy or apologetics, all of this is classical theism coming through. But there's that what if you know if what if he would have written that last book, the Essence <laughs> of God. <laughs> right. Oh, well, I suppose we can, we can wish and, uh, but at the same time, I think we know what he would have said. Um, now, Steve, let's go back to 1984. Uh, this is right in the middle of the eighties. Tell us about, uh, this is really early on, isn't it? I mean, this is, uh, towards the beginning of RC's mm-hmm. writing career. 1984, John Gershner, and, and him are actually teaming up now. And, right. uh, they team up to write this book called Classical Apologetics. Uh, they're not the only ones, of course. There's Art Lindsley. And, mm-hmm. uh, tell us what, where is this book coming from? And now it's a little bit more, it's published with Zondervan at the time, and it's a little bit more on the academic side, maybe semi-academic, we could call it. So it's not uh, quite at the level of, say, the holiness of God, more of that lay level uh, that Sproul is so famous for. And so a lot of times people are not aware of this book. What is behind, what is his motive here? What does he mean by classical apologetics? How is that different from, say, uh, evidentialism or, say, presuppositionalism? And uh, why is, why, why does R.C. uh, latch on to this topic? There's so many things here. I, I love your bringing this up. First of all, just an aside, the RC's personality. He always called Art Lindley Art the Dart. So they love the names. <laughs> so your so your listeners will appreciate this. It's, it's RC. Anytime I mention, he always say, "Oh, Art the Dart." Um, and can we just pause here for a second? He is running Ligonier Ministries, which is about to take off and literally moves from Western Pennsylvania to Orlando. That's 1984. Mm. In addition to running Ligonier Ministries, he's a full-time professor at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. Mm. So he goes there three months a year, teaches his entire course load in those three months. 
So full-time professor running a ministry, publishes classical apologetics in 1984, and writes The Holiness of God. It's published the next year, but he writes it in 1984. So what a year. <laughs> I mean, maybe Orwell, like, I don't know if RC factors into Orwell or not, but, yeah. but so let's, okay, so what's going on here? Presuppositionalism was taking the Reformed camp by storm, mm. and presuppositionalism started through the writings and teaching of Cornelius Van Til at Westminster Theological Seminary. Through some of his disciples, it starts getting spread in the 70s, 80s, people like Greg Bonson, people like John Frame, although there's some debate over how presuppositional he is, etc. The faculty at both Westminster Seminary Philadelphia, Westminster Seminary California, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, I don't know exactly when, but they take on Vantillian presuppositionalism as part of their doctrinal and sort of philosophical identity. Yeah. Um, so this is this is very much, and you know Westminster Seminary, I'm a graduate of Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia, huge influence in the latter half of the 20th century in the Reformed world. Right. And so R.C. and Gershner are watching this. And they see some faults in presuppositionalism. Then you go outside of the Reformed camp and you go to the, the lesser Calvinist uh, commitment camps of apologetics. And it's very much evidentialism. It's very much sort of man is neutral. And there's this uh, sort of neutrality that you can appeal to as facts and evidences and uh, anyone in their right mind when looking at these evidences will, you know, find for Christianity and find in favor of Christianity. And Sproul, Gershner, company are thinking, um, this is, these are both sort of divergent methods from the history of Reformed faith, but also of Christian orthodoxy. And so they become proponents of and advocates for a return to that called classical apologetics. The word classical in there is re representative of what we've been talking about, classical theism. And there are two things at stake here. I think the one is the definition of apologetics. What is it? And then secondly, methodology. Mm. And so the definition of classical apologetics is, this is the rational defense of the Christian faith. Well, that's very different from Van Zyl, the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life over and against the non-Christian philosophies of life. And notice he uses the word vindication. It's already true. It's already presupposed as true. You're just vindicating it. Hence, presuppositionalism. Um, that's not classical at its definition. Then you get into methodology, and we're back to this cause and effect stuff. And the idea is that these classical arguments for the existence of God, the cosmological, which veers into the teleological argument, uh, not so much the ontological, but it plays a role, uh, the moral argument. These, these classical arguments, especially cause and effect and the law of causality, are very much at the base of the starting methodology of classical apologetics to arrive at the conclusion that belief in God is rational. Mm. Now let's go from there. And that's very different from presuppositionalism and even from evidentialism. And uh, what Sproul and Gershner were trying to do in that book was uh, sort of resuscitate it. And well, maybe that's not the right word, but, but shine a light on it again, as not only being historical, but also having significant internal cogency and um, validity to it as a method of apologetic. And then RC followed up, I believe it was 2000, uh, with the book Defending Your Faith. Um, so I might recommend to people go there first and then maybe hit classical apologetics. Yeah. Yeah. Defending your faith. Uh, this is published, I think, in 2003. Uh, so this, 2003, is, right. this is much yeah, later, thanks. much later. But but like you said, I, I agree with you, Steve. If if listeners are thinking, OK, I, I, maybe they've been immersed in presuppositionalism and they're thinking, well, what is classical apologetics? Yeah, that's that's some excellent advice. Go to defending your faith, where uh, RC lays out many of the the laws, as he calls them, calls them right. The the law of non contradiction, the law of causality, um, right. The the basic reliability of sense perception, the analogical use of language, which is 
extremely important to, to R.C. That comes right out of uh, classical thought. Uh, but here he just very clearly uh, are, defines each of those and then explains why these are so important, not just to philosophy, but to a defense of the Christian faith. So, yes, I, I, I can't agree with you more, Steve. I think that's a really wise strategy. You know, when we talk about his book, uh, Christian Apologetics, I think there may be something that, uh, unless you're familiar with some of the background here, some of our listeners may not be aware of here. And this is where I think, Steve, you've brought this out. Uh, R.C., ironically, for, for maybe some as they're thinking, okay, we're going to enter in, into this debate, he actually dedicates the book to Cornelius does, Van Til. <laughs> and, and this comes out of, I mean, maybe you want to elaborate on this, Steve. He knew Van Til and he would even go over to his house and talk to him and, and even discuss some, some of these things with him early on, much, much earlier. How does this, how does this relationship form and, and how does this affect even how he's writing, uh, classical apologetics? He had a high respect for Van Til. He really did. Um, for a couple of years, he was a professor. This is before Ligonier. This is late 60s and uh, into 1970. He was professor at Conwell Theological Seminary, which was on the campus of Temple University. Then they merge with Gordon and become Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And the year that happened, he left Conwell, did not move. He had taught, this is confusing, he had taught at Gordon College. Then he goes down to Philadelphia to teach at Conwell Seminary. Then they merge, and he decides to just leave seminary, pastors briefly in Cincinnati, and then founds Ligonier in 1971. At that time he was at Conwell, he lived in Glenside, which is a suburb of Philadelphia. You take the train into Philly, Temple Campus, teaches classes, but he lived in Glenside. And that's the home of Westminster Theological Seminary. And Van Til lived not far from the campus. And of course, R.C. had spent time in the Netherlands doing his doctoral work, and he could speak Dutch. And he would go to Van Til's house, and they would talk Dutch and talk about Dutch theology. And Mrs. Van Til would bake cookies <laughs> and bring cookies out. And R.C. and Van Til would sit on his porch and eat cookies. Um, and then, you know, time Dutch theologians would come to uh, Westminster. And Van Til would invite R.C. to come and sit in on the discussions. Um, it was a brief time. He was there two and a half years, but uh, had a lot of interaction with Van Til. They maintained a friendship. R.C. sent the manuscript of the book to Van Til, was, was not interested at all in fighting with Van Til. He was not interested at all in putting down Van Til. He was interested in the ideas he, he had concerns that presuppositionalism was not a helpful apologetic, but also had some problems for later, for how that, how you truck that through your doctrine, especially what you were talking about, analogical language. Mm. As one of, he called those the four principles, law of causality, non-contradiction, analogical language, basic reliability, a sense perception. And he would say the key is analogical language. Now, Steve, why did he think that? And maybe for our listeners, what is analogical language, and why is yeah. why does he think this is so key? Absolutely. There's three options here, and you think about it. We'll deal with the two op other options, and it'll help define analogical force. So one is that God's language, or the language of God, so to speak, and the language of us, that that is univocal, one voice. And what R.C. would say is, we're not just talking about language here. We're also talking about being. Mm. So analogy of language is also analogy of being. Univocal language is also unity of being. So to say that God and we, his creatures, are of one unified voice is pantheism. Yeah. Like everything's mixed up. So, so now we're moving from language to being. Well, the opposite is equivocal. God speaks in an entirely different language, and we as creatures speak in an entirely different language. Well, what results in that is the so-called God is holy, as in W-H-O-L-L-Y, 
God is wholly other, entire transcendent, sort of beyond our grasp. In the middle is analogical language. And this, of course, comes from us being created in the image of God. That's the touch point, if you will, of this connection between creature and creator. And what it means is that we, in the image of God, as rational creatures, even after the fall, right, uh, can understand this world as God's world mm. and be able to see the language of God, so to speak, the, the evidence testimony of God in this world that he made. And so we then, not only analogical language, but analogy, analogy of being through the image of God is that sort of center of the road view that avoids univocal and equivocal. Well, R.C. saw in Van Til an emphasis on the equivocal and saw likewise an emphasis on God as wholly other and wholly transcendent. Therefore, you can't start with man to reason to God. You can't start with uh, you know, the rational argument. You have to presuppose God and you have to, as it were, sort of get out of your world and recognize God's world, the transcendent world. And you have to presuppose that for all thinking, all argument, all conversation, etc. And um, now RC saw that as problematic, again, not just for apologetics, how do you have a conversation with someone, um, <laughs> but also for uh, a developing doctrine of God. Mm. So, yeah, so all that was important to him. And um, all that is worked out in right there in defending your faith. And like I said, if you were to ask him, he'd say, this is really the key grasping this notion of analogical language and analogy of being. Mm. Now, in case our listeners are thinking, well, you know, RC, we love him, but he, he, he didn't really know Van Til that well. I, I just have to point our listeners uh, to, to something you say, Steve, because there's this one moment where, you know, the, the book's turned in to Zondervan, uh, classical yes. apologetics, and Zondervan is uh, using, which I can't imagine, uh, it, you know, they're, they're at the, the cutting edge of technology, but this is the 80s, <laughs> okay? So uh, <laughs> we have to keep that in mind here. But they're using a computerized a program for spell checking, um, changing certain occurrences of certain words and phrases, but somehow, some way, <laughs> this has got to be every author's worst nightmare, especially Cold with nightmare. a more yeah. academic book. Um, somehow the program deletes all of the notes, all the footnotes or endnotes to, uh, to Van Til's books and RC has to go back and find them. And, uh, yeah. Steve, this story I just find so remarkable because we're not talking, I mean, we're talking about, uh, it's not as if RC has all these books by Van Til and it's like, okay, I just got to, you know, find that st sticky note and there it is. No, he's having right. to go through all of them again and again and again. Okay and actually yeah. find the references. <laughs> he knows Fantil's work really well, doesn't he? Yeah, and you know, and he knew the sections where he got his stuff from, but it's also sections from Art and Gershner that he has to go through and get the quotes for. And some of Fantil's books at that point had no indexes. Oh. <laughs> so now you're really working hard to try to track down these references. Yeah. So yeah, you know, and, and I think this is very true of R.C. People see him as the platform speaker, and he was. I mean, he was the consummate platform speaker teacher yeah. that was just incredible. But I'm telling you, there is a foundation of he just put his feet under the desk, rolled up his sleeves, and slogged through books. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I had access to his library when I wrote the biography, and his personal books – it's underlines, it's margin notes, it's highlighter. Um, he's an active reader. He would sometimes keep notebooks of notes on books he read. So there's a lot of study there, and uh, that's very true for classical apologetics. Mm. And it's a, he's a good model, right? We don't. It's so easy for us to sort of go after people and not really spend the hard work of getting in and making sure we've understood them, and then challenging them. 
Yeah. He's a good model for that is the proper Christian scholarship uh, uh, approach. Absolutely. You know, the, the language, uh, classical apologetics is important. And Steve, you've, you've emphasized this already, but I can't help but say it again because, you know, sometimes we use words like, or phrases like classical theism, especially when we're talking about uh, natural revelation, natural theology, arguments for the existence of God. Uh, sometimes our listeners might hear, uh, phrases like classical theology, which, which could even broaden that a little bit, uh, starts to bleed into attributes of God, Trinity, and, and so on. Classical apologetics is also really crucial because, uh, so often in R.C.'s book, I mean, you can't read it, uh, any number of these books, right? Defending your faith, classical apologetics. Uh, the consequences of ideas, which is, I think, one of my right. favorites. Uh, his yeah, tour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, I, I'm sure you love that one, right? I mean, this tour through philosophy. But mm-hmm. um, yeah. this language of classical apologetics is important to R.C. because he's essentially not just making a biblical or theological or philosophical argument uh, against, say, presuppositionalism, but he's also saying, hey, what I'm arguing for, I'm standing in a long tradition as a Reformed theologian, I'm standing in a long tradition that goes back to uh, how apologetics has been approached for centuries, uh, even going back to uh, uh, some of the... uh, the fathers, uh, certainly he's going to put his finger on Thomas Aquinas and, and so many others. And so this emphasis is, is quite important to him because like you're saying, Steve, in, in at this time, at least, uh, presuppositionalism had, had been uh, a major influence in reformed, uh, circles. And here's RC. I mean, we often think of RC as, you know, so popular and really leading the way, but here's RC in the 1980s. And he's really standing against this big stream of, of, uh, of influence, which is quite remarkable. Right. It, yeah, you're exactly right. And it was a huge influence, especially in the reformed world. Presuppositionalism just sort of overtook it. And in many ways, that was true through the 90s, zeros, tens. And you look at a lot of the like young restless reformed that have come up. That's right. It, it's almost sort of a, an assumption that, that they're going to be suppositional, mm-hmm. right? And like I say, you get out of the Reformed world, and it's evidentialism, it's the um, Josh McDowell yep. uh, sort of of the world that uh, leads that charge. So it, he cared. He cared that we, he knew these doctrines had um, implications and consequences. And so he really cared as a teacher that we think through these things. And that's that's certainly the motivation behind the book. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, Steve, I want to give you the last word here as we bring things to a close. Uh, I will just say, and you've noted this as well, um, even in your own uh, look at R.C.'s uh, apologetics and his life. I mean, uh, there's some encouraging signs. Uh, you mentioned even that interview you had with him. I think you said it might yeah. have been your last. Uh, you, there, you mentioned someone like uh, James Dolezal and, and his book, All That Is In God. Uh, J.V. Fesco is someone else you bring up, uh, his, his recent book, uh, called Reforming Apologetics, which we've had John on the show before. And, uh, uh, this is another book that I, I remember reading, uh, John Fesco's book after I read, uh, James Dolezal's book. And both of them, I think, fall into this category. But, but reading John's book, I thought, Oh, RC would have been so excited to see this day, to see John, uh, making this case to, to reform apologetics in, in that classical sense. Yeah. So, uh, there are encouraging signs and, uh, conversations taking place. But Steve, I want to give you the last word here because when we talk about RC and we talk about classical apologetics, uh, it's not just that RC saw, I mean, he saw classical apologetics as really important for the Christian, which may, may get missed, right? I mean, in terms of discipleship and assurance of the faith and yeah. confidence, and this was really important for the Christian. But right. at the same time, and this, this is related to the, to us today as Christians and the challenges we face today in society, RC saw classical apologetics as also outward face in light of secularism. So, absolutely. Steve, yeah. 
close us out and talk to us about, I mean, there's almost a prophetic tone here. How does RC see secularism on the rise? And, and in light of what we said about apologetics, how does that help him? 15 things are going through my head right now. <laughs> Number one, if you were around RC in the final months of his life, he would grab you by the arm and he would say, have you read all that is in God? Uh, <laughs> if you haven't read that book yet, you should. Yeah. Uh, so he was very, he felt like, yes, there is bright light ahead for classical theism, classical apologetics. I want to say that. Number two, I want to say, just, just so we're clear here, RC would want us to say reformed classical theism because uh, we got to stop by and pick up the reformers. That's so right. I want to say that. But thirdly, what you're talking about, I mean, the book begins, classical apologetics begins with secularism. Mm. And, you know, we all, we all talk about Charles Taylor in our age, in his A Secular Age, a book that's a dozen years old now. In R.C.'s moment, the book was Harvey Cox, The Secular City. But it's the same thing. And, you know, secularism is a continuum. It's a continuum from a rabid, hostile atheism that sees Christianity as the worst thing for Western civilization, and you have to extricate Western civilization from it, or there's no hope for humankind. That was a very hostile secularism to the other end of the spectrum, which is sort of an apathetic, like, you know, this is Charles Taylor. God is just simply optional. Yes. That's the world we live in. And um, I, I think what we need to be able to do is help people look at this world and see how that philosophy does not uh, think with what they see in this world. And it's not an explanation at all for the origin of this world, not an explanation at all for purpose or meaning in this world. And it's not an explanation for where this world is going and what's the purpose of my life in terms of where this world is going. And so by forcing these hard questions of how do we understand this world and what does this world point to um, it's just a way to get secularists to rethink yeah. what they think is the answer. And in one sense, that's the apologist's job. We need to come along and we need to sort of problematize their uh, views of reality, of ethics, of themselves, of ontology, being, all these things, and just sort of poke and ask questions and get them to circle back to... Uh, well, what is the answer of where all this came from? What's at the beginning of all this and where are we headed? So so I think in many ways, classical apologetics is a helpful tool to help us engage secularism at any level so that we can truly, as R.C. would want us to say all the time, not only know what we believe, but contend for what we believe and defend the faith. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.